you for listening to the Fountain Court Chambers podcast. I'm Aaron Taylor, a barrister at Fountain Court, and the host of this discussion about fraud and financial crime in the global art market. Whilst the risk of fraud and financial crime in the art market, and discussion about how to prevent it, is certainly nothing new, it's fair to say that it has garnered a significant amount of recent attention. There are various reasons for this. On the fraud side, several recent scandals, some of which we discuss in the podcast, have highlighted the ability of dishonest dealers to defraud their clients or lenders by forging ownership documents, over-collateralizing works or selling works without good title. On the financial crime side, there's been an enormous focus on money laundering since the art market was included within the scope of the EU's fifth money laundering directive, which was implemented in English domestic law shortly before Brexit. No less tumultuous has been the impact of the war in Ukraine and the resulting sanctions on various Russian individuals and entities. Finally, of course, there has been the impact of technology. Art market participants and their lawyers have been reckoning with the brave new world of digital art, non-fungible tokens and cryptocurrencies and the various challenges and opportunities they present. I was joined to discuss these various issues by Susan Mumford, Tim Maxwell and Eleanor Davison. Susan Mumford is the CEO and co-founder of Art AML, a platform that assists a wide range of art market participants in complying with their anti-money laundering and international sanctions obligations. Before setting up Art AML in 2018, Susan spent a decade as an art dealer and advisor. She founded the Association of Women Art Dealers in 2009 and the organisation Be Smart About Art in 2012. Tim Maxwell is a partner at Charles Russell Speechley's and a recognised leader in the field of art law. He has represented clients across the art world, including artists, public institutions, auction houses, galleries and collectors. In cases involving artist rights, ownership, art finance, attribution, restitution and many other issues, including several of the most high profile disputes of recent times. Tim provides guest lectures at Sotheby's Institute of Art, Christie's Education, the University of Glasgow and the Institute of Art and Law. Eleanor Davison is a senior junior here at Fountain Court. Eleanor specialises in international civil and criminal fraud, bribery, money laundering, market abuse, insider trading and sanctions cases, alongside banking, financial services and regulatory investigations. She's instructed in a range of high profile matters, including most recently the Dame Linda Dobbs review into Lloyds Banking Group's handling of the HBOS Reading Affair, the inquiry into the post office Horizon software, and the proceedings brought by the Serious Fraud Office against Barclays Bank. This depth of expertise and range of perspective amongst the panellists gave rise to an excellent discussion of the nature and extent of the risk of fraud and financial crime in the art market. I hope you find it interesting, and thanks for listening. Susan, perhaps you could set the scene by explaining what we mean when we say the art market. What are the typical structures for art transactions? And what are the different kinds of art market participants that we should have in mind? Well, art market transactions can certainly vary and the players can also be quite differing as well. I suppose if we look at the basics of the art market, one might be dealing in the primary or secondary art market, primary being the first time a work of art has sold and secondary being the second or subsequent time that a piece has sold. And I imagine what immediately comes into many people's minds is that you have a gallery 
that has a work of art and that work of art is potentially then sold to a collector. Now, how that gallery came to have the work of art could be by varying means. It might be that they own the piece, in which case it would be selling on the secondary market because their sell would be at least the second time, or it could be on consignment, in which case it could be consigned by an artist as a primary market sell, or it could have been consigned by, let's say, another player in the art market, which is the moment for me to introduce the term art market participant. And that's something that's actually used in context, the money laundering regulations for the art market and, and art market participants have now been caught by the money laundering regulations. And those are individuals basically transacting in art, works of art, according to the VAT Act 1994, for values of 10,000 euros or above. Most of what you would think about as being a work of art is probably caught, paintings, sculpture. But actually, interestingly, when it comes to sculpture or maybe photography, printmaking, it can be determined by how many pieces are in an edition, for example. Now, how long is the VAT Act 1994 going to be what's determining what's a work of art is another question. But for now, that's what is applicable. And might that at some point be updated as well, for example, to incorporate digital art. So at the moment, NFTs, not actually digital art, but in fact contracts, an asset of sorts, they're not actually caught as works of art. And one of the conversations that RTML has with some art businesses is how about not only looking to the letter of the law, but also looking at the spirit of the law. So we do know some art businesses that they think, well, actually, if, if they deem it as being a work of art, they will go ahead and, and consider it to be one for the purposes of conducting customer due diligence. Now, if we look at who the various players are, I've already mentioned several. You could have a, a gallery. You might have another dealer who has consigned a piece. You could even have another gallery who's consigned a piece. You have the artists, you have the collectors. You might also have intermediaries or introducers. And actually the distinction between those two is really significant from my point of view, looking at compliance. An in introducer, say an interior designer who says, oh, gallery, please do some, some work with my client because they want to build a proper art collection. In which case the interior designer is working as an introducer, whereas if you have an interior designer or an art advisor taking an active role in a transaction and representing the client, which I would certainly expect an art advisor in order to bring the value to their client in terms of what they are doing as profession, they would be caught as an intermediary and therefore they would be an art market participant from a compliance point of view for the money laundering regulations. There are going to be other players that we might have in transactions, but I would say those are some of the primary ones. You could also have professional services involved with that. When it also comes to, say, looking at the buying and selling of art, another point that is significant is, are we looking at private individuals or are we looking at a company, a business, a corporate that's buying and therefore then determining who is the ultimate beneficial owner? And we could go, you know, into many, many layers on that. Is it a for-profit? Is it a not-for-profit? In which case, for the latter, it may not be as obvious to determine who is the person of significant control, but it is possible. Are there multiple layers of ownership as well? And certainly with what has developed with the changing sanctions environment 
after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, looking at those kind of multiple structures, those multiple tiered transactions can add complexity in, deter- in determining who are the customers or who is the customer involved. Of course, I have been talking about galleries and art advisors and tier designers, artists, and another key aspect of the art market will be the auction houses. And I think it's worth noting that when we think about auction houses, although the immediate idea, and I would imagine for most people, is to think of the kind of large auction houses, but in fact, there are regional auction houses that play a really significant role. And we know about that through RTML, whereas we're not service providing services to the large auction houses who have built their own compliance departments over many, many years with their own systems. Actually, the regional auction houses, they've been having to introduce compliance measures in more recent years. Some of those have been caught already as high value dealers when they are making or receiving cash payments of 10,000 euros or above, but not all auction houses actually were caught as high value dealers. So some are now acting as high value dealers and art market participants, and some are only operating as art market participants. And I think it's really worth highlighting from the point of view of, say, how the art market addresses, say, how we adopt anti-money laundering in our sector to realize that actually we're not looking at what many other sectors have, which would be ongoing business relationships. In the art market, we're looking primarily at occasional transactions. And that's actually significant. If you think about what's happened in 2022 with the introduction of just numerous newly sanctioned individuals and, and businesses, if a gallery, say, did a transaction, they they sold a work of art that, or the transaction was of the value of more than 10,000 euros in 2021, it was somebody who's now sanctioned, but they weren't a year ago, they wouldn't need to actually do any kind of updating of that existing compliance check because for occasional transactions, the onus, what, what the responsibility is, is to actually look at what the situation is then to retain those records in a GDPR compliant manner for personal data for the period of five years, as opposed to some other sectors where you have ongoing business relationships, where you have to keep the information up to date as time goes over that over that period. And it would be more rare for there to be ongoing business relationships. It's possible for, say, an art advisor who might have a return, retainer for services, but is that actually for works of art? So it's a really interesting consideration, and I think it's quite significant for our sector. Tim, are there structural factors? I have in mind particularly, for example, the level of confidentiality that one sees in a lot of um, private art sales that make the art market susceptible to fraud and to financial crime? So I think that um, whenever an art fraud takes place, people do tend to highlight the strange features of the art world, which sort of allow the fraud to take place in a way. I'm not sure that that's necessarily fair, but there are some certain features which um, certainly help with concealing what has occurred from whether it's for legitimate means or illegitimate means. So for example, unlike property, there's no central register of ownership. So there isn't a place you can go to find out who owns a particular artwork. There are registers on the blockchain and things, but there's no central recognized register. So that is a feature that allows people to claim they own a work of art or to borrow money against the work of art, and they may not necessarily own it. In terms of the blockchain, people are very hopeful that that will produce a, an independent registry if governments are unwilling to provide it. Because I think in historically, governments have been 
reluctant to invest money into a central register because there just simply isn't the level of value that there is, say, in property um, or the need to protect consumers. And so it's seen as very much a sort of wealthy industry and it can sort of self-regulate. I think that is changing. And I'm not sure that the blockchain provides a complete answer to these things because it sort of gives you an answer as at today, who owns these items. So if you own an old master, for example, you say you're the legitimate owner, then you are then the owner on the blockchain forevermore. With contemporary artists, it's a different question because obviously if the artists say, say they created it, then they sell it on, they can impose a royalty, which is another way of getting sort of artist resale rights. And they can also find out who's buying their works and they can um, then the ownership is sort of tracked along the way. There's also, as you say, there is this long-standing tradition of confidentiality. It's justified, or it has historically been justified on the basis that people don't like to flaunt wealth. They're worried about security. And, you know, if you know that someone has a Leonardo da Vinci, you might burgle the house or whatever. Um, There's also this question of wealthy individuals using offshore structures. So it may not be entirely simple to work out who the actual owner of an item is. And I think it's the nature of the asset itself as well. So it's, you know, most artwork, and that's not all artworks, there are some huge sculptures and huge pictures, but it's normally, it's worth significant amounts. It's very portable and it's very easy to move. So it does lend itself to sort of crossing borders easily, being able to be picked up, moved, transacted in, and no one will be any the wiser. So I think there are features of the art market that if you are a bad actor, um, it allows you to behave in a certain way. So that may be that you sell an artwork repeatedly to numerous people and you say each time that you have good title to it. Or it could also be that you're borrowing money against it, either having sold it or having sold more than 100% of it to various people. Or you're borrowing money against it from various people because they don't know that there's money borrowed against it. So I think the nature of the asset does encourage certain types of behavior. But I mean, inevitably, whenever there's an art fraud, it's sort of the art market is highlighted as a very dodgy area. But um, I think it happens in every market. And if you're a determined fraudster, then you'll find a way through these things. Is it true or is it a caricature of the art market that deals are still done on a handshake without the sort of documentation that one would see in other? industries. I think that is true. Um, And I think there's a certain magic to the art market. So people who would say buy a property development for 100 million would expect piles and piles of paper, contracts, all due diligence. And yet if they went into a gallery to buy the the picture, they may well just accept the um, invoice or the handshake of the dealer and transact on that basis and take the dealer's word as gospel on the particular item. So I think it is an odd market in that sense, because it's sort of a passion market. But I think it does still happen. There are also, there are more and more contracts, and a sort of well-advised purchaser will make sure that they're clear, even though it's not a huge contract, as to where title passes, um, you know, who's responsible for import-export duty, just obvious things, but they can be quite easily dealt with. So it doesn't have to be a huge contract, but it is sensible to put those in place. But it still does happen that deals happen over handshakes. And probably worth saying that that depends very much on what sort of art market participant we're talking about. So at the other extreme, presumably are the big auction houses who who do things in a very formalized way. Yeah. So you would have um, 
with an auction house, if you're purchasing from an auction house, you will be purchasing on their terms. If you're a seller through an auction house, then there is room for negotiation because obviously you're the consigner, so you can say what is and isn't acceptable. But yeah, those terms and conditions will be very carefully drafted to minimise risk to the auction house particularly, but also the consigner. Eleanor, against that background, can you set out for us what kinds of fraud risk exist in the art market? Yes, so I think there are four central fraud risks that art market participants need to be alert to. Um, the first is perhaps the sort of most established, uh, which is forgery of a work. So when an individual paints a work, says it's a Chagall or a Van Gogh or whatever, but in fact it isn't, it's been painted by Mr Smith somewhere else. The second is sale of a work without title. So where an individual sells a person the work or a stake in the work, and in fact, he doesn't have proper title to it. And we've seen some examples of that that I think Tim will come on to speak about a little later. So where people purchase a work, they wire a huge sum of money for the value of that work, and then discover later that the dealer didn't own the work in question. The third one is selling or collateralizing more than 100% of a work. So it's increasingly possible to sell off portions of a piece of work while still retaining possession of it. So an individual sells shares in a work to various buyers and they total more than 100% of the total value of the work. Or a buyer subsequently discovers that the work has been used as collateral for a loan or some other sort of investment um, subsequent to purchase. I think the other area to be aware of when we're talking about um, contracts and the increasing sort of formalization of contracts around sales although as Tim says some still some deals are still done on a handshake but people need to be alive to the fact that those documents themselves can be forged so although you might see a transaction as being incredibly well papered in fact all of those documents are forgeries as well. We've seen examples of uh, various of those issues in a few prominent recent cases. Uh, perhaps the most well-known is the art dealer Inigo Philbrick, who was arrested not too long ago on the uh, beautiful island of Vanuatu. Another high-profile case is that of um, Ezra Chawaki. Tim, could you tell us a little about those cases and whether they share any common features? Yeah, so often... Um... Once these art market frauds come to light, they do share common features. You know, you can't speculate as to the motives of the people involved, but it could well be that, you know, there are financial difficulties or something like that. And suddenly there's a means of accessing cash. So they need to access cash urgently. So they start doing things they wouldn't otherwise have done. So, I mean, for example, Inigo Philbrick, as you mentioned, um, he is alleged and actually the US court convicted him to have done all these things effectively. So he is alleged to have sold portions of artworks and sold more than 100% of them to various owners. He's also um, alleged to have falsified invoices to indicate higher values in order to encourage people to put more money in than they would otherwise have done. He was accused of borrowing money without informing any of the co-owners and borrowing money against the artworks. And eventually this was all upheld by the US court and he was jailed for seven years in order to pay restitution of about $80 million. There have been similar situations. There's Ezra Chiwaki, who's situation is very similar. There was also an earlier case of a UK art dealer called Timothy Salmons, where they all had similar features of either borrowing money against artworks where the true owner wasn't aware that money was being borrowed, 
or um, selling items without the true owner being aware of it. And I think, as Eleanor says, these frauds can be more or less sophisticated. So there's also, there have been historic cases where there's an example of someone called John Drew, who was a benefactor of the Tate, and he had special access to the archives of the Tate. So what he did was insert um, fake provenance, um, say forged provenance documentation into the Tate archives. Then he would get a forger to create the works. And then, of course, when they came to be checked against the Tate archives, they'd find that these works actually had impeccable provenance. So they'd then be sold on. And I mean, that's quite a sophisticated way of um, defrauding people and was successful a number of times until he was eventually caught out. In recent times, it's fair to say that most of the art market fraudsters have actually been prosecuted through the United States and the UK has taken a sort of back seat on them, presumably because the fraud had a US nexus or it was people in the US who were being ripped off. And so many of these Inigo Philbrick, Joachim and Salmons all were tried in the US. But interesting that in each of those cases, there's an international, particularly a transatlantic element to their to their work and and to some of the alleged offences. All of them had contacts in London and presumably in Paris and perhaps in Hong Kong as well as focusing out of New York. Yeah, absolutely. And I feature of the art market as well that it's so international. So you wouldn't necessarily know when you consign something to a dealer in London that actually it is now being sold in the US. And in the US, you'd have greater protections because there's something called the UCC register, which is a sort of public register of charges and things like that. So if people are securing money on artwork, there is a register in New York. But if you assume that your picture is in the UK, there's no reason for you to check the UCC register. In the UK, there's no comparable register. So there is just nothing you can check um, apart from the bills of sale register, which is sort of archaic. And you have to make an appointment at the high court to go and see it's paper-based and you have to have the postcode and the name of the debtor, I think. So it's just not widely used because it's from 1878 or something. So the UK is arguably an overdue a reform of that, but the government did announce a reform in the Queen's speech a number of years ago. And then it just hasn't, with everything else that's been going on, it's never made its way through into law. So there's nothing comparable to the UCC in, in the UK. Turning from the fraud risks to the financial crime risks, Eleanor, could you give us a short overview of the uh, relevant money laundering offences that art market participants might come up against? Yes, I mean, in the art market, money laundering risks is in relation to the sale and, of course, the purchase of a work of art. On the selling side, there's a risk that an art market participant could handle or facilitate the sale of a work of art, which is stolen looted or purchased with the proceeds of crime, such as tax evasion, forgery, bribery, corruption, all sorts of possible predicate um, offences. And there's also the, the, the risk of terrorist financing. On the buying side, money laundering could occur where the participant facilitates the purchase of a work of art with funds which are derived from any one of those criminal activities. There are some examples in the um, art market guidance. There is one, for example, where an art dealer sells a sculpture, pays the proceeds of the sale to the seller. But prior to the sale, had that dealer um, carried out a lost or stolen art database check, they would have discovered that the sculpture had been stolen in a theft for a museum. Um, a further example offered is um, a buyer purchasing a high value painting from an art dealer at a major art fair. Payment for the painting is received into the dealer's bank account from an offshore bank account. 
and the painting is collected, but had proper customer due diligence checks been conducted, they would have discovered that the buyer um, themselves were being investigated for tax evasion or money laundering, and that the laundered proceeds of those alleged crimes were reportedly held at the bank from which the payment was received. So it would obviously be um, a red flag there. So to answer your question specifically, Erin, um, there are three main money laundering offences and then two specific regulated sector offences. The three principal money laundering offences are set out in the Proceeds of Crime Act. They are under sections 327, 328 and 329. Section 327 deals with concealing, disguising, converting, transferring or removing from the jurisdiction criminal property. Section 328 deals with entering into or being uh, becoming concerned in an arrangement which facilitates the acquisition, retention, use or control of criminal property. Section 329 deals with acquiring, using or possessing criminal property. And those are all very widely drafted offences. Their inchoate forms are at Section 340 of, of um, the Proceeds of Crime Act. And that covers money laundering, which would constitute an offence under either of sections 32789 and constitutes an, uh, an attempt of conspiracy or an incitement to commit these substantive offences or constitutes aiding, abetting, counselling or procuring the commission of, effect of one of those offences or would constitute one of those offences if it's done outside the United Kingdom but would constitute such an offence if the conduct occurred inside the UK. So those are the, the, the three central offences, and there are certain common elements to those main money laundering offences. And you'll, you'll note that they all require involvement with criminal property. So one might ask, what is criminal property? And that itself is defined under the Proceeds of Crime Act in Section 343 as property which constitutes a person's benefit from criminal conduct or represents such benefit, whether directly or indirectly, um, and if the defendant knows or suspects the same. So that knowledge element or suspicion element is the low bar. It simply means that the defendant must think there is a possibility, which is more than fanciful, that relevant facts exist. And that's in the case of De Silva, which I know is a very well uh, a very well known case. Property is very widely defined under the Proceeds of Crime Act. It includes money, real property, tangible and intangible personal property and shows in action. And a benefit, all of the offences require there to be a benefit element. And that was also defined at Section 340 of the Proceeds of Crime Act and includes any property or pecuniary advantage obtained as a result of or in connection with, so again, very broadly drafted, um, with the relevant conduct and that includes avoiding paying your tax. So those are the central substantive money laundering offences. And then in addition, there are two offences specific to the regulated sector uh, set out in sections 330 and 333A of POCA. Section 330 is the failure to disclose offence where a person obtains information during the course of business as a result of which they know or suspect or has, have reasonable grounds for knowing or suspecting that another person is engaged in money laundering, and which information includes either the identity of those persons or the whereabouts of the property. And then section 33A is the tipping off offence, 
where if you um, disclose either the fact of a money laundering investigation or the fact of an authorised disclosure under Section 330, and where you've got that information during the course of your regulated business and the disclosure is likely to prejudice the investigation that's on foot, you'll be committing a criminal offence. Against that background, Tim, what are the particular money laundering risks presented by the art market? So I think, as we've discussed earlier, there are the structural risks which allow bad behaviour perhaps to go unremarked or unnoticed. There's also the question of opaque ownership structures. So there may be offshore companies, so no one really knows who owns what assets. I mean, obviously, in recent years, that has um, been eroded by things such as Panama Papers, um, where things are leaked online and suddenly the ownership of particular artworks is traced back to certain beneficial owners. And so to an extent, that has provided a window into certain transactions. I think, like any market, there are always people who will take a criminal element. There are always bad actors. The art and antiquities market is portrayed in the press and by some governments, recently the Swiss and very recently the US governments, as being a market which is ripe for money laundering and sort of financial crime. And that may be anything from just straightforward money laundering, where you're spending the proceeds of crime buying assets. Obviously, very valuable pictures are a way of spending money, just as property or jewellery or something like that may be. But also, it goes wider into sort of looted um, antiquities, things like that, from conflict zones, where governments have tried to bring in sanctions to stop those items being traded on the market, which takes them into a slightly different area. And like any market, that can be small money laundering here and there, or it can be huge uh, transactions. I mean, obviously, one of the most famous ones is the 1MDB scandal, where various governments were investigating what was said to be money that had been expropriated from a sovereign state and then invested in various assets. In that sense, the sums involved were absolutely huge. So part of the US accusations involved effectively that the art market was being used as a shadow banking system. So paintings, money borrowed against paintings, that sort of thing was being used as a means of accessing liquidity and cash. So it was a means of facilitating what was going on. So I think, you know, the art market does perhaps lend itself to these things. I'd say that some of it's overblown in terms of what the press says about um, everyone in the art market being involved in these things, but there is a risk. And I think that has probably not been helped, and this is something we'll come on to later, but by NFTs, because obviously there's then the uh, question of you know cryptocurrency and the anonymity and new means of spending, perhaps criminal gains um, through NFTs. So... Yeah, I think some of the criticism is very fair based on the structural problems that we talked about earlier. And is it possible, Susan, to to get a sense of the scale of this problem? Is it the odd rare case or or do you think there is a uh, a slightly wider spread problem? I mean, until we have some case law, it's obviously going to be difficult to say and some known kind of offences that have have been determined. But uh, my reading of say that the art market being targeted with this this kind of crime is if we're talking about money laundering is that it's not necessarily commonplace but that it does exist so that uh, I mean one thing that I think is is very true that I often say to our clients at RTML is that if you have an effective regime in place in your business and a criminal does put out their their feelers to see 
do you have a system in place to look at who is the customer to to you know to look into what the risks could be that 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 individual that the say potential criminal would then go oh yes let's abandon that one and go target someone else is that happening i think certainly it is i mean it art is the prices can fluctuate and that's not unusual it's easy to transport you've got a major issue certainly is is the lack of transparency in the art market i think a major danger of our sector is and as somebody who used to transact in it myself is that a lot of things that are just seen as commonplace business culturally as being acceptable in the sector are such that actually maybe it means that people end up unwittingly break the law or they they do things that open themselves up to being targeted by criminal activity. So I, I would anticipate that longer term, we will discover that there is some money laundering taking place. But in terms of the vast majority of players, they have no idea. And it's been quite a fascinating journey to teach a lot of small art businesses about taking a risk-based approach. What on earth does that mean? And I'm thinking, for example, of the time when my co-founder and CTO, Chris, he was on a on a call with one of our clients and the client just sort of nonchalantly mentioned, oh yes, well, this particular client paid for this work of art, 10,000 pounds in cash, didn't think anything of it at all. Just, it just did not have the training or the experience to understand why that would be a red flag. So we are we we have been teaching people really the absolute fundamentals of of what to look out for and that's probably one of the things that has put the sector at risk in fact is just ignorance. And as as those businesses become more savvy as they learn to thinking it will be less vulnerable and therefore also less likely to be targeted. And we hope that that means that we will have a sector in time that perhaps is less kind of prone to criminal activity and people are able to carry on with their, with their businesses. Let's see what what time holds for us. I think we've all asked ourselves the question, what on earth does that mean at some point? Uh, alongside money laundering risk, one financial crime that's uh, perhaps got a lot of attention recently, especially in light of the war in Ukraine, is sanctions evasion. Eleanor, perhaps you could briefly set out uh, how the sanctions regime works, uh, at least in England and Wales? Yes. So financial sanctions restrictions are put in place by the UN and by the UK, and they're put in place to achieve a specific foreign policy or national security objective. And obviously, the recent conflict um, in Ukraine is is one such foreign policy um, issue. The sanctions can do a range of things. They can limit the provision of financial services. They can restrict access to financial markets, funds, or economic resources. The general thrust of them is is an attempt to change the behaviour of a particular regime or, or individual by denying them access to resources that they need to, to continue that behaviour. And they can also be used to protect the value of assets that have been misappropriated um, from a country until those assets can be repatriated. And the way that it works within the UK is that there's a consolidated list of individuals or bodies that are subject to sanctions. They're known as designated persons and the it's Office that publishes um, that list to help businesses and individuals comply with the sanctions requirements. Probably the, the most relevant type of sanctions requirement in this area um, are asset freezes. And once an asset is frozen, it becomes prohibited to deal with the frozen funds or the economic resources belonging to or owned by a designated person 
and those that are made available either directly or indirectly for the benefit of a designated person. And I should sorry, sorry, I should say for completeness that the sanctions regime applies reporting obligations similar to those on the money laundering regime and also in terms of terrorist financing. Tim, what has been the effect of the renewed focus on sanctions for the art market? So the art market has suddenly been faced with dealing with sanctions as well as the onset of new regulation. And as Ella says, the government do provide lists and assistance in terms of working out who is sanctioned. In practical terms, that can be quite tricky because obviously, as we talked about, it may not be immediately easy to work out who owns something or whether it's owned through a structure. And even from the press, you can tell that some of the governments have struggled to work out who owns particular items like yachts and things and whether they're owned by people who are in fact sanctioned. So it has been tricky. And obviously, in the art market, it's not just auction houses and people who are caught up in dealing with sanctioned individuals because you may find as a gallery that you have something on consignment or in an exhibition that belongs to a sanctioned individual and that can cross many borders, so it can cross European borders or it could go into the US or Switzerland and then the UK and then suddenly you're dealing with a number of governments who all apply the sanctions slightly differently. So it can get quite complex and the same applies to storage companies as to you know, the advice they need to take on whether to seize items and what to do with the items and the practical consequences aren't always easy to work out because it could be that something needs to be moved or something needs to be conserved and then who is going to pay for that if the individual who owns the items is sanctioned and can't access funds that could be a huge practical headache and these things are being worked through at the moment but they weren't necessarily obvious to people at the outset of this situation and something that i think the art market is not well aware of typically as yet is what is being called the luxury goods ban. And this is actually significant, could be significant for some players in the art market because essentially it's going to apply to goods over the value of £250 that are luxury and that will certainly be any work of art. The thing for the UK, so the luxury goods ban, there are equivalents to this in the EU, Switzerland, in the US, but with the UK, it's not actually only looking at items that are going to Russia. It's actually also applying to individuals who are connected to Russia. And the challenge they're thinking, what exactly does that mean? I'm going to actually read for you what the luxury goods ban says, chapter 4B. The export of luxury goods to or for use in Russia is prohibited. A person must not directly or indirectly supply or delivery luxury goods from a third country to a place in Russia, make luxury goods available to a person connected with Russia, and that's the one that you go, well, what exactly is meant by that, and make luxury goods available for use in Russia. And we have found a definition of what it means to be connected to Russia, but then the question mark there is it's talking about being ordinarily resident in Russia. And what does that mean? So we've been looking at, say, somebody who pays tax in Russia, someone who spends maybe a certain number of days in Russia. Also, the, there is a great importance for art transactions that involve more than one, I might call them art player, Beyond, I'm saying that beyond an art market participant, because maybe it's someone who's not regulated for AML, who is involved in a transaction. Might they be hiding someone behind them who has a connection to Russia? And then there's a delicate line to be played as well, obviously, 
about then potentially discriminating too. So it's a very, I guess, complex kind of set of considerations that are going to be new to the sector that the sector is learning about at the moment. We certainly are introducing those considerations into our into our platform, but it is going to mean that for transactions, pretty much regardless of value in the art market, that ascertaining if there's a connection to Russia is going to be incredibly important for businesses to continue with transactions. And if someone is discovered to be connected, then the question is, well, then they need to take some next steps as well. So they're reporting to the OFSI, for example. We've already mentioned one aspect of the art market that's garnered particular interest in recent years. That is non-fungible tokens, NFTs. An NFT is a digital record of ownership of another asset. The NFT is separate from that underlying asset, but it constitutes ownership of that asset, similarly to a paper title deed. And so the NFT is an intangible and tradable asset of its own. The underlying asset to which it relates could be of any kind, but uh, NFTs have risen to prominence in the context of digital art. The reason for this is that NFTs have for the first time allowed the creators of digital art to confer authenticity and uniqueness, even when the art itself is freely available online. That authenticity and uniqueness has allowed for the rapid growth of a commercial marketplace in digital art. NFTs operate on a distributed ledger or blockchain, which is an immutable digital record of transactions. Uh, That record is distributed, which means digitally held by every user operating on the blockchain. And the NFT is introduced or minted into the blockchain. And each time it's traded, that new transaction becomes a new block on the chain. In the case of art NFTs, the most used blockchain is Ethereum. And NFTs can be bought or sold using Ether, uh, which can be exchanged at various online exchanges, either for other cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, or for fiat currencies, such as US dollars. Each NFT is unique, which is to say non-fungible. Even if anyone can go online to look at the digital image to which it corresponds, only the owner of the NFT actually owns the rights to that image. The purchaser of an art NFT does not usually obtain any intellectual property in that art, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. One prominent example of art NFTs which come with some associated IP is the series of images known as Bored Apes, created by the US company Yuga Labs. Tim, the artist David Hockney famously said that NFTs are the preserve of crooks and swindlers. Is that fair? I think NFTs do definitely get a bad press and the mainstream art market is slightly wary of them, I'd say. So it's NFTs have created an entirely independent art market in many ways. Some of the major artists have got involved uh, in minting NFTs. A lot haven't um, in terms of the major galleries. A lot of them haven't gone near NFTs. Other ones have. So there's a certain amount of reluctance in the mainstream art market to embrace NFTs. Um, That hasn't meant that they have not been immensely successful outside that, although obviously with the recent crashes and things. People are trying to work out where the NFT market will end up. But NFTs do present some obvious problems because they are sort of ahead of regulation at the moment, and that is changing, um, like cryptocurrencies. But um, it would appear that when you're purchasing NFTs, that's a way of spending cryptocurrency. It's not necessarily obvious how that cryptocurrency was acquired. So it's another means of spending your cryptocurrency rather than converting it slowly into dollars. Um, You can buy a very valuable NFT. So that 
does mean that people who have bad cryptocurrency can then spend that on NFTs. And that is an obvious risk of the market. I think also NFTs have been used like the art market, but sort of the art market on steroids. So people have started promoting things which are seemingly worth this, but who's to say what things are worth, but giving them an artificial value. So pumping up the value and then selling them off and taking the profits and vanishing. There have been an increasing number of cases about that, particularly in the US. There's also been the sort of outright Ponzi schemes whereby you're selling something, promising a return, and then again, people are left uh, being ripped off by it. And then there's also the bad actors. So there's the traditional, although technologically difficult, thefts and frauds where people have stolen NFTs off people who own them. There are cases coming through the English courts now. And there's also there are some very famous cases involving bored apes in the US where Todd Kramer had one stolen and was appealing publicly for them to be returned. So there are traditional crimes taking place against technologically advanced items in the art market. So I think it's certainly got a bad reputation in the FT market, but there is a genuine market beneath it. And I think as time goes by and these things sort of come out of the woodwork, we'll see where that ends up in terms of a market. But I think it will remain um, a market within the art market. There was also one uh, high-profile insider dealing uh, indictment in the US uh, over the last month or so. Yeah, and there's um, there's the suggestion that actually these are obscurities. So there is a law firm um, gathering board ape investors to bring a claim that these are actually securities as opposed to artworks, effectively. And I might just jump in to say what, something that I'm hearing from many people in the art market is that they feel like they should get involved with NFTs. So they're seeing this whole this whole new thing, fad. Is it a fad? We don't know. But this whole new space developing. And it almost is like they, in order to appear to be on top of the, the, the developing art market, that they need to do it too. And of course, ties into what Tim just said. However, this market is regulated over the coming months and years, presumably needs to take into account the fact that NFTs are not exclusive to digital art, but but also all sorts of other luxury products. Uh, and it, it would seem odd to have a reg- one regulatory regime to cover art NFTs and one that covers uh, all their other uses. NFTs are clearly very much on the mind, not only of regulators, but also of law enforcement bodies. And earlier this year, we saw the first seizure of an NFT in the UK. Can you tell us about that, Eleanor? In um, February 2022, it was reported that HMRC had uh, seized three NFTs as part of an investigation into a suspected VAT fraud involving 250 fake companies. They secured a court order to seize the NFTs and other crypto assets worth about £5,000. And I think it's worth remembering that, of course, with confiscation proceedings under the Proceeds of Crime Act, the investigating police force can keep half of the forfeited goods and the other half goes to the Home Office. So with digital currencies, it's it's quite appealing for that sort of action to, to be taken. Interesting, that example and the some of the uh, hacking or theft examples that Tim brought up make the point, I think, that there's there's both an opportunity uh, as, well as, a, as, as well as a risk posed by NFTs. Because, of course, whilst you have increased anonymity, most people dealing only through a, through a sort of anonymous wallet, you do also have a much greater asset tracing potential, at least through the blockchain, because the transactions are so clearly laid out. And so whilst the defendant to a, to a civil or criminal case might be uh, a person unknown initially, at least working out the route that any particular asset or 
any uh, cryptocurrency has taken is, is much easier often than it is when you're dealing with bank money or cash. Susan, could you summarize the way that the uh, money laundering regime for art works in the uh, UK and the European Union? Yes, certainly. So in May of 2018, the EU decided upon the fifth anti-money laundering directive, which required that EU member states implemented by the 10th of January 2020, and the UK indeed implemented our own regulation, which was brought in by Parliament the last day of session in December of 2019, and then in 2020, indeed, it became law on the 10th of January. And actually, not all EU member states adopted quite so quickly, but today, all EU member states do indeed have some equivalent legislation in force. The pandemic certainly made some changes uh, that needed to be put in place. So, for example, whereas the original deadline to register with HMRC as an art market participant business, uh, that's on gov.uk, was the 10th of January 2021. And that was required in order to continue transacting in works of art in the UK or works as a business in the UK and works of art for the value of 10,000 euros or above. That actually was shifted to the 10th of June 2021. And that really is unusual for such a deadline to be changed. But the pandemic meant that that, that, that took place. And I would say a reality of what's happened with the art market is that the pandemic, to a certain extent, paralleled the early days of this new legislation. And I think it means some businesses and some players in the art market thought, oh, well, this is never really going to be fully enforced. But indeed, it, it certainly is not being enforced. And we know from one of our own clients that penalties are being given for, say, example, uh, late registration. If you look at the then global art market, the US has been going back and forth a bit, whereas the US, there was a decision by Treasury as of February of 2022, that was early in the month, I might note, decided that they would not introduce a regime for AML in the art market for the time being, deciding that it was better to actually refine the existing regime for other sectors. Of course, now we've had an entirely changing landscape with a Russian invasion of Ukraine and Presumably, it is that is possibly some intelligence sharing as well from the UK. I mean, we don't really know that for sure, but we know that there is certainly a program of intelligence sharing, but it is looking more likely that the US will now be adopting legislation for the sector. We hope to have more information on that later in 2022. And it does make it difficult, say, when there is an international transaction between, let's look at the UK and the US, where perhaps there's a US intermediary and the UK-based art market participant says, we need this information about your customer in order to continue the transaction. We cannot rely on any CDD that they would do because you, you need to be regulated for money laundering in a based in a jurisdiction that has money laundering regime in order to use reliance in which there might be multiple parties in a transaction. And instead of inconveniencing the, the customer for each art market participant requiring the same information. Maybe one party relies on the CDD of another. You still take liability as the relying art market participant. Not everyone would like to do that, which is perfectly understandable. But what is to stop the US intermediary from turning around to the UK art market participant and saying, actually, we have a confidentiality agreement with our client and we're not regulated for this. So therefore, we're not going to give you their information. Would you like to proceed with the transaction? And that is happening, Sam. Providing that we do have the change 
that is now more anticipated again in the States, it at least means that in those major art markets that that will not so much be a challenge. But then you look further afield to China and might it give the China art market an advantage in the sense of not having any regulation for the art market and certainly not expected anytime soon. It's in its early stages, of course, but um, is it possible to say now how effective or successful the new regime has been in its infancy? It's definitely resulting already in art market participant businesses taking action. As early as late winter, early spring of 2021, when HMRC set upon a campaign to contact many art businesses in the UK, we received actually some panicked telephone calls asking about what they needed to do. What we have then been discovering since is that as they have been stepping up, really the the rigor of the regime that we've been increasingly hearing from art businesses, being more and more aware of what their obligations are. It's what we've realized as a private company is that however much we say you have a legal requirement for training, you have a legal requirement for this, that, and the other, it's often not until they hear it from the regulator that they actually take some action. So what we've seen happen more recently is that when the regulator, this started in about September of 2021, when the regulator started to ask, well, please, would you provide a certificate for your training? We would receive another panicked telephone call or email. Or more recently, the regulator as part of the registration process requiring the art market participant business to either provide evidence of training and or to provide their risk assessment policy. That's I think, brings us to the inevitable question of what comes next. Tim, how do you see the future of regulation in the arts market? I think um, the art market is only going one way towards increased regulation, given the noises coming out of government and other bodies. And I think it would be naive to ignore that. I think also the fact that there are now these they're sort of Ponzi schemes whereby consumers are being sold artwork, which is of dubious value, and people are putting savings and things into these schemes. I think that inevitably will bring increased regulation because obviously the regulators can't ignore consumers being ripped off, and they are in effect financial schemes. So I think there's only one way that it's going. Um, traditionally, it's been viewed as a sort of rich person's market, so it's very difficult very difficult to get authorities interested in investigating things because they assume that people who are involved in it will be able to afford lawyers or they will be able to afford to bring their own remedies. Whereas increasingly, I think it is um, becoming open to more people. And I think with that comes regulation. That's not to say that's necessarily a bad thing. And people have highlighted examples like the diamond market, where actually that was seen as a rogue industry and increasing regulation actually brought a lot more people into that market because suddenly it was seen as a an industry that could be trusted, a transparent market. So it could well be that there are actually a lot of opportunities around bringing more money into the market, becoming more mainstream and people not having a bad experience and being put off by their first experience. Well, that's an excellent note on which to end this very interesting discussion. Susan Mumford, Tim Maxwell, Eleanor Davison, thank you very much. Thank you.